0: So let's say that you were on a blind date, and afterwards your friends ask how did it go, and you said, oh yeah, pretty good, I mean, I met this person and they were really nice, but they kind of had a sword coming out of their mouth and their eyes were on fire. It's hard to see those as endearing characteristics, but yet God, the one who is supposed to love us, know us, and care for us more intimately than anyone can possibly imagine, is depicted as having this very same stuff going on in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. There's a reason just like there are reasons for the clothing and the surroundings, and to get at them, we'll need to take a look at the relationship between the cerebrum and the cerebellum, investigate the phenomenon of falling over forwards, and why you'd want to have brass feet. From this mass of strange details, we're going to see if a picture emerges, one of an even more wise and loving God than we'd thought of before, an uplifting vision for the future of humanity and ways to live that vision every day. Stay tuned. everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Really glad that you could join us today. Uh, As always, my name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host of this show, and this is a show where we take a look at life, and we took a look at it through the lens of the experiences of Emanuel Swedenborg. Who's that? What is that? he was a guy who lived in the 18th century, very prominent scientist, recorded what is probably the longest set of spiritual experiences or paranormal experiences I don't know what the kids call them these days, but he had a lot of them and they gave him a lot of potential insights, and we're here to investigate. Is there anything good? If this is your first time, there's a lot to digest. You may want to check out these two clips here. Boink, boink. Mm, My little boink maker isn't working very well. I have two clips here, I promise. They're gonna pop up in a second when we get our tech stuff rolling. Uh, And that is a link to our Intro to Swedenborg video and then our who was Swedenborg? What should I read? So just like Google, there, there they were. <laughs> Is that um, enough time for you? Okay, great. Uh, hopefully we'll get that. Just check the description of the video. Click down there. There's links to them in there. All right. So get your questions in. Don't forget, if 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 you are gonna stick it out with us here, even after we don't know how to run our own stuff, if you're gonna stick it out with us here, there may be questions. We're gonna go over a lot of material. Or maybe you know how to say what we're saying better than we say it, or you have an insight that we didn't touch on, or something like that, get it in. We'll have a live Q&A thing at the end of the show, and just participate in the chat room, and be, be a part of it. There's, there's good stuff, uh, good conversation there as well. Alright, so we're gonna do it. As I said, it's gonna get heavy. We're gonna explore uh, details of things that seem obscure and arcane, but according to Swedenborg, the meaning behind them is so immediate and so potent that we're, we're using it every day, or, and could benefit from knowing a little more about it. So, let's begin our exploration in part one. Yeah, so we're talking about the book of Revelation from the Bible. You've probably heard of it, um, and I want to say right away, People are probably having different reactions to that. Some people are like, oh yeah, the Bible, Revelation, Jesus Christ. Other people are like, oh no, I don't, that is the last thing I want to talk about. And I want to say that we are going to talk about a vision of Jesus Christ today, but when we talk about Jesus Christ, Swedenborg often uses the term the Lord to refer to that, and when he's talking about both, he's talking about what we would call the divine human, which is a, which encompasses Jesus, but is a, has a, a couple extra dimensions to it. Um, that we cover in our show, uh, How to Understand the Trinity. So I'm just kicking you to all these different shows. My point in saying all this is that this is a universal concept, Swedenborg says, that, that anybody can be interacting with, regardless of their faith program or set of beliefs. What I want to say is, this is relevant stuff. Whether or not you consider yourself Christian or are interested in Jesus Christ, this is a... Swedenborg says a principle that's underlying everything. And I'd say, just like, come on, you already got this show going. Give it, give it a little chance. Give us the section two and a half, and then you can cut out and not have to come back. All right. So that's what I'm saying about that. We're going to look at the meaning of this. This is a pretty famous depiction of Jesus Christ that comes in this first chapter. So why is it like that? And what does it mean? First, let's step back and look at the whole... Book of Revelation, to get our footing. Where are we? Let's look at the trajectory of it, and why not map it out onto like a, like a Scrabble... I was gonna say Scrabble board, just more like Candyland, right, or something. If this was the Book of Revelation, we're there at the top, you know, the lampstands, the guy, the vision there. And you see at the bottom, that's the end of the book, with a vision of uh, the New Jerusalem very distinctive architectured city at the bottom. And in the middle, there's all kinds of stuff. If you read it, there's just, there's beasts, and there's battles, and there's plagues, and um, all kinds of drama in there. And so just worth looking at and noting this basic structure, vision at the beginning, vision at the end, stuff in the middle, and we're going to be looking specifically at that first vision, which is this vision, because we're going to go in depth to explain it and give it its context. Um, so let's take a look at what that vision was. Um, there, there's this guy, who Swedenborg says is Jesus, I mean, not Swedenborg, but John, and we'll get to John in a second, and he's got all these features, he's got these accessories, there are swords and stars and lampstands, there's clothing, there's specific descriptions of specific parts. Why? Why is that God? Like, wh- why is that an image of God? And I'm going to say, first and foremost, that, um, that that is not God. Nobody's claiming that that's like, oh, here's exactly what God looks like. God has this wardrobe and has these features. This is a, um, an image of something. This is a representation of qualities of God. We did a show once called What God Looks Like, where we went over the different ways that people have reported visual depictions. So this is not saying this is how God looks, but this is a way that God looks. And why does God look this particular way? But before we even get into that vision, we've got to look at who's behind the camera there. Who is actually having that vision? Because every detail matters when we're looking at the inner meaning, the correspondential meaning of these stories. So the person having the vision is just as important because it gives us the context for the whole thing. And you may have heard that this was uh, a vision seen by John. John on the Isle of Patmos. We got a photograph of him right here. Um, Well, I mean, so it's a a rendition, but he introduces himself as John, your brother and companion. Every detail means something, and the meaning is relevant to every person. We're going to get to specifics right now. So John... Swedenborg says that John is a symbolic character, that he is representing something psychological in people. He says John specifically are people who possess the goodness of charity and the resulting truths of faith. And it also represents knowing the Lord, which is the most important aspect of doctrine. But notice, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm John. He says, I'm your brother there, and every word has meaning. So, brother talks about the goodness from love, which is the only thing that forms family ties in the afterlife. Ah, so now we're talking about life after death, but he can't get into Swedenborg without weaving that stuff, and he's saying that... On a spiritual level, the level of thoughts and feelings, and of the survival of consciousness after death, the things that tie us together aren't physical genetics, it's um, similarity and dissimilarity of purpose, you know, it's what do you care about, and what 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 do you pursue? That creates these family kind of ties. So in summary, you could paraphrase and say that John is the goodness in each one of us that connects with God, connects with each other, which is really the same thing. So. John is this good, receptive place that longs for positive, pro-social human interaction. Right? That's John. And that's who's having this. So, in all of us, that's the part of us that can see this vision, or is being told about this vision. That's the part that uh, is supposed to be paying attention. Alright? So that's how the game is going to work. Let's begin our story, now that we know who John is, and see if we can tease out some of these other parts. So this is from Revelation 1, uh, 9 through 9-11.
1: I, John, who am also your brother and your companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient awaiting of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I became in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book, and send it to the churches which are in Asia, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea.
0: So how is that relevant to each of us? I don't necessarily want to write. Do you have to write letters to those churches? And where do you find? Them? I guess you could Google them; would be pretty easy now. But what does that mean, uh, Swedenborg? As we as we saw before, he's got this internal sense for it. However, you can't just like, write the internal sense of that passage as Swedenborg describes it, because he takes volumes and volumes to get through little chapters of it. There's so much complexity. He talks about it having multiple layers of meaning at the same time. However, he does, and and he goes into such thing, each thing so much that you can't just pull his quick definition. However, we can, from that, amalgamate and create a a paraphrase of approximately what this means on one level, all right? And this is what we want to show you, because this is the level we're going to be chasing, and this is how that same phrase reads translated into the the language that Correspondences gives us, and this is the relevant, uh, relevant explanation of it to everybody. So that beginning part about writing letters and announcing who you are, this is what that means on an individual level.
1: I, the part of you that wants to know the Lord and to love others, while suffering from the attacks of evils and falsities, waiting for the Lord to come and dispel them, was feeling isolated from worship, wanting enlightenment, wanting to receive divine truth from the word with my heart and mind, and wanting to know the one divine God as a human. I was in a spiritual state of mind, wanting to learn when I felt powerful heavenly truth flowing into my feelings, bypassing my intellect, telling me that the Lord is the one and only reality underlying everything. I was told in my heart, remember this and pass it on to others.
0: So this is an experience that can occur in anybody's life. And it doesn't mean it'll be the same in everybody's life, but there is some kind of, you know, fulcrum experience here that can happen on this road to, to spiritual growth. Um, and uh, this is like a... An interpretation. I already made a joke about the, the sending letters to the churches in Asia. It wasn't very funny, but I'm going to say we're not going to get into the specific meanings of those churches. It's It has to do with all people. Seven means all, so all people who will receive the message. Uh, we'll do that actually in another episode, but for now we're going to keep, keep following this train. And I want to pause here, because we've introduced the concepts of how Swedenborg is interpreting this. You, you know the general thrust of it, and I want to say that Interpreting the Book of Revelation is like a an a whole industry, right? A, a lot of people are saying this is what it means. Uh, that it, it has to do with World War II or something like that, or or the rise of somebody, and that this is this is something people do all the time. You've probably heard it, but Swedenborg's explanation does stand out a bit because he he's uh, probably unique in, or at least in a very selective group of people who say the Book of Revelation is not just allegory and it's not a a prophecy of physical things. It is talking about real events, but they're spiritual events rather than physical events. They're gonna happen on a spiritual level or have happened or do happen rather than happen physically. It's not just a tale of morality, it's not a predictor of wars and things like that, but it's this spiritual thing. However, the plot thickens because not only that, but there is um there's something very uh, interesting about Swedenborg's work on this book itself. And we talked to our good friend Jim Lawrence, who studied this extensively, and he made this interesting point.
2: A great mystery of Swedenborg's career is centered in his interpretation of the of the Book of Revelation.
0: What a mystery! We got to know. You got to tell me what it is. All right. I'll lay it out for you real quick before we get back to Jim. So, these books that were on Jim's table there. You see this little stack right here with that red guy pushing him off the edge? Uh, That is a work of Swedenborg's where he was going verse by verse through the book of Revelation and explaining the inner sense. You see how many books that is? He didn't even finish the book of Revelation. He didn't even get all the way through it, but he was able to write that much on it. The mystery is this, not only did he not get all the way through the book of Revelation, he never published these books. Even though he had like a fair copy written up, he'd done tons of work on it, he just scrapped the whole product, project and product and said, I'm not doing this. He didn't even tell anybody about it, he just left it there. And so that obviously begs the question that Jim brings up here.
2: Why did he stop? We know that he ultimately does, in the next decade, publish a much smaller work on the book of Revelation. Maybe a clue is found In this book, which is one of his five 1758 works, it's a little skinny book called The Last Judgment, and he says in section 45, so this is a book being published in 58, it has been granted to me to see that with my own eyes that the Last Judgment is now accomplished and that the evil are cast into the hells and the good elevated into heaven and that all things have been reduced unto order. The spiritual equilibrium between good and evil or between heaven and hell is restored. And it was granted to me to see all these things with my own eyes in order that I might be able to testify to them. This last judgment was commenced in the beginning of the year 1757 and was fully accomplished at the end of that year. So we know that he begins exegeting possibly at the very end of 1756, possibly early in 1757, all of this material at some point he stops, he might have stopped as late as 1759 uh, because that's the title page that is that he has written out for the book that he was going to publish called Revelata Explicata. Um, Or perhaps he stopped at some other other point, but he's referring in 1758, that's the year before 1757, he saw the Last Judgment unfold. And And then he publishes another skinny little book in 1763, five years later, very skinny little book called A Continuation on the Last Judgment, and he fills out with considerable details. The um, some information on what has been going on in this vast reordering of the spiritual world, different kinds of populations, different kinds of regions. Uh, it's almost written uh, like a travel, could be seen as a travel log, uh, travel book, if one wanted to go there. So we know that he ultimately did, in 1766, publish his interpretation of the full book of Revelation. It's called uh, uh, Revelata.
0: Yeah, so he did put something out, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say that that set of books, which is usually referred to as Apocalypse Revealed, is coming out a new translation by the Swedenborg Foundation under the title Revelation Unveiled, just in case you wanted to be more confused. Yeah, we don't even have cover art for it yet because it's it's decently down the line, but it doesn't mean we can't still get excited about it. Speaking of excited, let's take a look at some more Swedenborg trivia. Sorry, I, I love this kind of stuff. So he does have this part that he published, and Jim's going to talk a little more about that.
2: But then we get a little clue if we jump all the way to 1768 in the work, major work that he publishes after this book, where he tells at the end of one of his spiritual experience stories he says then i heard a voice from heaven it said enter into your chamber and shut the door and give your attention to the work on the apocalypse that you have started and pursue it until you finish it within two years so if he's writing that after the fact we can assume that the year after he wrote this book with a much more complete explanation of what had gone down in the last judgment, uh, he returned in 64 to publish this in 66, these two volumes.
0: So to recap, we we have these books, all these different books that kind of follow in a chain, as he was describing. The big set that he didn't publish, often called Apocalypse, explained in the English translation, was scrapped, but this little stack here, often called Apocalypse Revealed, New Translation, Revelation Unveiled, sorry, confusing things, Um, that he did publish. And they, so both of these two big sets here were on the book of Revelation, but they're quite different, but they're also similar. I want to just, just because we're going to be dipping into both of these, as we explain in these sections, I want to give you a few notes on the similarities and differences between these two accounts of what the meaning is internally, similarities and differences. Okay, so let's pull up a split screen, why not? They both emphasize the oneness of the divine, and again, look at our show, How to Understand the Trinity, that was an important point. They both emphasize the need to walk the talk, or you can't just say pious-sounding stuff, um, or, or spiritually sounding stuff and still be a mean person. You gotta, like, it's gotta, you gotta live by what you claim to live by, and it's gotta improve the lives of the people around you and improve your own life, or, or else there's not really value in it. And then also he, in both of them, says that the spiritual formation that occurs here continues into the next life. In the afterlife is, we're not reset or something like that, we're just, we're working on our personality here, and you continue to do so on the other side. A couple of differences, the biggest, one of the biggest ones is probably that in, before he, in his unpublished work, he was talking about the Last Judgment as this theoretical thing, but in the one that he did publish, the little one, are you with me still? He is talking about it as something that already happened, as an accomplished fact. And in that book, he, instead of talking about the, the universal church as he did in the unpublished one, he's more talking about this new church, this specific thing that has come into being and is continuing to come into being. And obviously, the one he published was tiny next to the one that he didn't publish, relatively about, you know, whatever, a quarter of the size of it. Um, and that's because he threw out a lot of tangents. He got more focused. His ideas got more distilled. So, But there's good stuff in both, so we're going to use both. Those are just a couple of similarities and differences. But there is a, one similarity and one theme that runs throughout all of, all of Swedenborg's work, really, and, is, and in particular, these ones on Revelation. And Jim said it well, so I'll let him say it.
2: Swedenborg has a distinctive approach uh, that he takes to the Book of Revelation. It's not about Russia or about China. It's not about last week's news. It is about your life and my life uh, moving into the future life. It's a spiritual event that occurs in those in those as fantastic uh, symbolic chapters, and it's well worth. Our close
0: attention. Groundwork has been laid. We're ready to go. Let's look now at what mysteries did Swedenborg find out about this vision, why it's important, and what it can do. Let's look in part two. I mean, we just met. Is it okay if I just talk to your cerebellum for a second? <laughs> We're going to look now at, we're going to continue in the book of Revelation. And if you remember, way back at the beginning of this first section, we, were, we met John, we, know, we met what he symbolizes, and he says that he heard a voice, remember, a voice talked to him. And that's important to know because it ties right into what comes next and the meaning of it. So let's look at the next verse in Revelation.
1: Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Every detail
0: means something. And we're going to focus on the most minute detail here. Why did he turn to see the voice? And why did he see a voice? But let's focus on the turning. Why did he turn? Like, why didn't why wasn't he facing the right direction in the first place? Wouldn't, if that voice is from God, wouldn't God have known, oh, he's facing this way? I'll go around so you don't have to be embarrassed by not facing the right direction. How how does that matter? And it matters a lot. It, It matters a lot, and it has to do with the anatomy of the brain, if you believe Swedenborg. Swedenborg was, before his spiritual experiences, intensely focused on discovering how the human body worked. He was a leading scientist in the field of anatomy, and that carried over into these experiences that he was having. So the voice speaks from behind because of the way our brains are, are laid out. And specifically, we're gonna be talking here about the cerebellum. And even today, we don't know that much about the cerebellum or what it does. We know some things. We're gonna go through this greatest creation of the human brain, Wikipedia, to get some information on it. Um, we have a little excerpt from there. You see that that picture on the right, the little green thing flashing, that's the cerebellum the little brain. It is a region of the brain that plays an important role in motor control. It may also be involved in some cognitive functions, such as attention and language. So we don't quite know uh, scientifically if it is, but it seems like it is, and we'll be back to that more because Swedenborg has some assertions or assertings about that, such as attention and language, and in regulating fear and pleasure responses, but its movement-related functions are the most solidly established. And it's, yeah, it's hard to study a brain, because they're in people's heads. So you just, it's hard to get in there without people getting pretty upset at you. So we, we only know what we know. The cerebellum does not initiate movement, but contributes to coordination, precision, and accurate timing. Its cortical surface is covered with finely spaced parallel grooves in striking contrast to the broad irregular convolutions of the cerebral cortex, so those big old folds up top. Because of its large number of tiny granule cells, the cerebellum contains more neurons than the total from the rest of the brain. it takes up only 10% of the total brain volume. That little thing. So whatever's going on in there, a lot is going on. There's high density neighborhoods of neurons in that thing. Uh, And Swedenborg says it's because, or he says, part of it has to do with the, the spiritual function of the cerebellum. Now, all the body has spiritual function in that the physical world is constantly interacting with the spiritual world, and our body is in perfect sync with our spirit, but it does it through structures, and the cerebellum is part of this, according to Swedenborg, and you can find a clue in it in the fact, uh, I mean, sorry, we're going to look at that, but then also, why did John say he can see the voice? Why did he turn to see the voice, you don't see voices? Both of these answered in Apocalypse Explained 61. Now, remember, this is the unpublished book. It's got great stuff in it, so we're going to use it, even though he didn't publish it, maybe he didn't want us to use it, but it's too late, we're using it. And so here's his explanation of this phrase. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. It is clear that these words contain a secret which cannot be known unless it is known how the divine flows into us from heaven. For it was from an inflow that John heard the voice behind him, and that afterwards, being turned to see it, he saw the things which followed. The divine flows from heaven into our will and through the will into our understanding. Inflow into the will is in the back part of the head, the will being like the the feeling emotive part of us, because into the cerebellum. And it advances from there toward the front into the cerebrum, where the understanding has its seat. And when it comes by that way into the understanding, it also then comes into sight, for we see from our understanding. So he's talking about progression. Heaven is talking to the parts of your brain which are talking to your eyes. I know. It is from much experience that I have come to know that this is the nature of inflow. So he's like, yeah, man, I know it sounds out there, but uh, I've... I know. I've, I've felt it happen. Whether we say inflow into the will or into the love, it is the same thing, since the will is the receptacle of love. But there's more. But at present, it is not allowable to relay more on this subject, because things relating to it are not yet known. That's an interesting phrase to me. It sort of seems like he's saying, I could tell you more, but we don't know enough. Like, the human race hasn't figured out enough about the cerebellum. I can't preempt that and force force you guys to acknowledge that I knew things before they were going to happen. I don't know exactly what it means by it, but that seems like it. These few things, however, have been stated in order that it may be known what is involved in the fact that John heard a voice behind him, and that he turned to see it, and why it is that it symbolizes an enlightened understanding. Anything that enters through the will into the understanding, or through love into faith, comes into enlightenment, for whatever we will or love, we perceive clearly. The case is otherwise if it enters by way of the understanding alone. The phrase, to see the voice, is used here because seeing, when said of spiritual things, symbolizes understanding from enlightenment. And unless seeing symbolized understanding, the phrase to see the voice could not have been used. Because it wouldn't make any sense. Because spiritual sight is understanding. So he moved to understand what this inflow was saying. Are you confused enough? (laughs) Or maybe you got it way better than I did. Either way, we're going to the diagram. So this is a little map of what's going on. So there we are. We're smelling our flower. We're, We're having a really good day. And inside of us, we've got these two parts, you know, the will and feelings in the cerebellum, according to Swedenborg, the thoughts and understanding up in the cerebrum, in the cortex there. And you've got the way that we see life, you know, based on how we feel and how we think, we perceive life in a certain way. And pretty much everybody perceives life differently, And, and everybody in some areas. There's a lot of variation in what people believe is accurate and real. Swedenborg talks about certain conditions, though, that can muck up this system. Specifically, he talks about hell or or egotism or everything that is negative, being able to Im- sort of corrupt the system in that, he says, it, it starts with feelings, the will and feelings. So this is desire for control or for domination or to harm the neighbor. If that takes hold, it then corrupts the thoughts and understanding. We call this motivated reasoning, sometimes in psychology, uh, that you believe things you want to believe. So if you've got a desire to to be better than other people, you're going to think of reasons why. If you want to carry out some nefarious plot, you're going to justify it. Those two in tandem set this cloud over the way we see life. It puts our blinders on, makes us really walk away with a false picture of who other people are, what life is like, right? So that's a problem, but Swedenborg says we got a heaven for that. Uh he specifically talks about two heavens. First, we're going to take a look at the middle heaven now. If you know Swedenborg, he talks about three different levels of the mind. Heaven is a state of mind, so there's this corresponding opening into these three levels that creates uh, uh you know, l- lowest, middle and highest heaven. Um so here he talks about the middle heaven being able to, the angels there being able to flow in and fix up the thoughts and understanding. So from that heaven you can get your thoughts and understanding corrected, and from that, you've still got a cloud over your vision, but it's a lot less intense. You can It's a lot more transparent. You can see that you'll have a closer to true picture of life. It's not totally true. We've still got this problem in the will and the feelings, but at least you can clear up the mind. So that even if you know, like, I, that's sort of where we are when we say, oh, I want to do thing X that that I know is harmful to myself or others, but I know I shouldn't, so I'm going to kind of fight against it." We we go through this sort of stuff. However, if that's not good enough for you, Swedenborg says, if we can open up through the process of spiritual growth to the highest heaven, a whole different kind of light that comes in. This is enough to knock hell out of the will and the feelings. So instead of being basically selfish, we're basically selfless and altruistic, that affects the will and the feelings creating, you see that little arrow there, perception, which is a different kind of way of seeing the world. It's more observing what's actually there rather than manufacturing a narrative about it. He would call that enlightenment now in the thoughts, and that the cloud is gone. We actually have, we actually illuminate life as we go through it, so we we see things as they really are. That's the advantage. So hey, it's worth checking out the availability, of the highest heaven, if, if you're looking for some kind of, uh, you know, cerebral associates, right? He talks about these two heavens, and why would the middle heaven affect you in that way? Why would the highest heaven affect you in that way? In Secrets of Heaven 9.6.70, we're going to quote from that subsection two, the nature of angels in the deepest heaven. And he he says the highest and deepest are the same thing, he says, spiritually. So you can talk about the deepest and the highest, and we actually, from language, we pretty much know that. If you say, oh, that was really deep that means really good, and if you say something uh, is really high, that can mean literally lofty, right, that can mean good. So we sort of know, oh, those are kind of the same thing, and, and he agrees. The nature of angels in the deepest heaven as compared to the natures of angels in the middle heaven is visible from correspondence. So here he goes, angels are talking with your brain. The angels of the deepest heaven correspond to that activity of our body that is governed by the heart and cerebellum. The angels of the middle heaven correspond to that activity of our body that is governed by the lungs and cerebrum. Activity governed by the heart and cerebellum is called involuntary and spontaneous because that is how it appears. But activity governed by the lungs and cerebrum is called voluntary. This fact can shed some light on the greater perception of the one heaven over the other and on the difference between them. However, the angels in between, who edge toward both heavens and unite them, correspond to the cardiac and pulmonary plexuses, which connect the heart to the lungs. You see what I mean about his previous anatomy experience mattering in these experiences? They also correspond to the mandula oblongata, you guys right? Happy Gilmore, okay, where fibers from the cerebellum meet up with the fibers from the cerebrum. So there's these connecting angels that this is, heaven is not separate, but it's not just a mush. It's the way that that works on a large scale, the same way we work here. We have very defined structures, but they help each other and they're connected in a very specific way. But what does that mean? He talks about, you know, feel, uh, you know, willing from... The, uh, you know, from the understanding? What, what does it mean when you get that enlightenment in the thoughts, in the feelings, I mean, that leads to the thoughts and leads to that clear perception? What's the difference on seeing the world in a thought-based way ver- versus seeing the world in a in a feeling-based way or thinking from, from good feelings? Uh, what does that all mean? See, I can barely describe what I'm trying to set up because it's like a bunch of terminology, right? So when we were writing it, Karin, who writes this show with us, uh, had this thought on some experiences she'd had that that seemed like maybe this is that in action. Uh, So here's what she had to say.
3: I'm really fascinated by this image of greater clarity coming from behind us. Represented in this story about John on Patmos and represented by our cerebellums being at the back of our heads, dealing with aspects of ourselves that we can't consciously control because we we can manufacture opinions we can use our cerebrums to construct a view of how things are built out of thoughts but that is never going to give us a totally accurate view of what's going on accuracy is going to come through the realm of feelings and though we can choose between higher and lower feelings we can't construct them into mental structures in the controlled way that we do with intellectual thoughts I do see this happening in life Like, I can intellectually construct an opinion of who you are based on how your opinions and actions compare with mine. But that's not going to give me an accurate view of who you really are. It's actually only if I open up to compassion and love that I can begin to see who you really are. A shared emotional experience will give far more accurate understanding between people than all the rational intellectual assessment in the world. And if I'm willing to open my heart and listen to a person with a different opinion than mine, my heart can be touched with an emotional realization, like you feel the same kind of fears that I do, and suddenly I have a more accurate view of that person. So consider this too. Consider the same thing in a relationship with God. Say I'm feeling compassion and sadness for someone who is suffering through rational intellect i can try to figure out where's god in this picture why isn't god doing something differently here if if god really cared this wouldn't be happening but everything is different if i'm struck with an emotional realization in my heart that i'm sharing an experience with god this compassion in my heart that's god's compassion that sadness about someone suffering that's god's sadness if i let in that feeling recognizing it, then through my feeling, my understanding of God becomes more true. Instead of letting my intellect block my vision, I can let love enlighten my vision. Then I can ask, since we both feel this way, Lord, what can I do to help? How can we work together? And that is when the real guidance and understanding can begin.
0: So that could be a way that it shows up for you. Do you remember what we're doing in this show? Do you remember what our progression is here? Do you realize this whole time, all this cerebrum cerebellum stuff has been about Revelation one twelve when John turns? Do you remember that we were doing that? But we haven't even gotten through that sentence because there was the lampstands. He turned and saw these lampstands, right? Do you remember that? Let's take a look at the lampstands. We're going to give you the correspondence on these. So he receives this through his will, he turns, this. he gets this enlightenment, he sees lamp lampstands, what are they? Well, seven, there's seven of them. We know from the numbers show we did a while ago, seven means all, it's the same as the seven churches, and gold is a symbol of good actions coming from love, so helpful things coming from uh, the right motives coming because you want to help not because you have an ulterior angle in the situation those put together the seven golden lampstands are a symbol of all who will be in the new church which what's the new church it's a mindset based on good actions coming from love so john gets this enlightenment the good part of us gets this enlightenment turns and sees recognizes that in everybody else who's who's acting on altruistic impulses all right so that is the story of Revelation one twelve. You want to go to one Alright, let's see where the story goes from here.
1: And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and girded about the breast with a golden sash.
0: So here's where we really get into it. As is revealed later, that's Jesus Christ there, and we want to ask
1: why. And
0: why, why does, why is that image of God portrayed? What does it mean? And we can start by saying, why is God wearing clothes? Is God cold? You know why? Is it fashion? Is it like well, you can't be naked because you just can't do that. Like why does God have clothes on? Why does God need that? It's just trying to like. Is it trendy? What is it? Why? And there's there. Swedenborg says that's not just because you think of a character. Oh, he's got to have some kind of clothes on. How about a robe? There's a specific meaning, and he goes into it in Apocalypse Explained 65. He says goodness radiating is meant by the sash being tied around the chest because all clothing symbolizes things that emanate. So that would be in, in any of the Bible, in, uh, in correspondences in general, you would even say in dreams. Clothing is outside the body and clothes it, just as things that emanate are also outside the body and surround it. In the spiritual world we are all dressed in clothing that reflects our desire to become intelligent and wise. All spirits and angels have an aura of this desire emanating from them called the aura of their life, and their clothing reflects this aura." So, somehow, those articles of clothing are a reflection of the divine aura. That's why they're appearing, this time, in that visual way. So let's look at the specific representation of those things. Uh, Here's a picture. So there's a couple of things. First, there's the positioning itself. This person, this divine human, is in the middle of these lampstands. So the divine human who is in the Word is the center and origin of the new church mindset. Uh, the long robe that was pictured is the aura of divine goodness taking form in divine truth. Goodness meaning yeah, the, the underlying essence of things, the substance, is, is what's appearing there. Then this sash that's up there, all the way up at the chest, is the Lord's divine goodness. So this is love flowing out from His divine love that can reach us and join with us. So the useful things, the good that the divine can do. And in case all that's too much uh, good and truth and all that stuff, um, we're going to get into a little more of what it all means coming up soon. So we've got specifics now on this particular image of God's accessories and clothing and everything like that. So what what else does this book say about this figure of God and why is it there? We're going to check it out in part three. Yeah, red eyes. You did see that, right? And, of course, we're going to take a look at that. It all has meaning. The whole thing is a representation. It's not just like, oh, I'm God, I got better look in a certain way for the photo. This is a presentation of qualities. There's an underlying essence qualities are being presented in this particular way to John at this particular time. Let's take a look at the individual features. First, we're going to look at the head, the hair, and the eyes, and this is in Revelation 1.14.
1: His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire.
0: The eyes, especially, what what is that? Why and why is that cool to have fiery flame eyes? How is that like friendly and loving and good? Let's take a look. This is what Swedenborg says: on the internal sense of all these things. First, down in the bottom left, head in general, the correspondence is everything connected with the person's life, the person's love and wisdom. In the Lord's case divine love and wisdom itself. So any of us, uh, on, on any level, a head symbolizes the life, and we know that's like a summary of a person is in their face, right? You have uh, all, all the uh, the different body, the, the emotions we feel show up there, you, you can tell what's going on with somebody by the face, um, and so God is just this image of the divine love and wisdom. The eyes, what's up with those red eyes? With a fl- We don't know if they're red, it just says a flame, but we're guessing. Um, Swedenborg says, eyes are the all-seeing wisdom of providence, powered by divine love. The, the divine love, love corresponds to fire. Meaning, the things that fire can do for us, love can do for the spirit. Fire is, you know, if you think about it on a civilization level, this is what allowed us to start to cook, allowed us to, to evolve it. And key, in, in what we use a lot of other methods now, but a lot of times you're burning things to be warm, Um, There's all kinds of, I'm sure that the new kinds of heating implements that we have have a similar correspondence, but it's the love. There's love in there and the eyes are the wisdom, so you have love and wisdom together. The understanding and the passion to do good with it, that's what's burning in the eyes. The white hair is not a sign of age, although I'm probably God is quite old, but the Lord's pure divine goodness and truth in the literal sense of the word, and in the outermost things of life. So hair is usually a symbol for the outermost things, because in the body you can lose hair, you can change hair, it doesn't change who you are to the extent that the changing more internal parts of you would be, and to have God's white like that symbolizes this love in those outermost Things, all right. So that's the head, but those aren't the only details that were revealed. It also there's talk of the feet and there's talk of the voice. This is Revelation one fifteen.
1: His feet were like fine brass, as though fired in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters.
0: You wouldn't think you wouldn't think it up if you were trying to think of what's the coolest looking God I can think of. Would you really say brass feet? Isn't that strange? Wouldn't you just say, like, he had boots on, or, or his feet were glowing white? Why, why brass? And Swedenborg says it's there because of the correspondence. So here's the correspondences for those elements. Feet, in general, are here symbolizing the Lord's divinity on the earthly level. It's the lowest part, but it's, it's so it would be the stuff that we're dealing with. But even, not just like physical, but within your own life, the, the mundane, the practical, there can be good in there. In the brass, His divine goodness on the earthly level, so justice and sincerity of moral life, these are the outer actions that we can do to try to better the life of people around us. We also talked about the voice. You know that there was this water coming out, and yeah, we'll get to the sword, but there was this, the sound of many waters, is that really a good sound to communicate information? Why water? it's because it's a symbol of the Lord's presence in earthly truth, or outermost truth, meaning in the outermost levels of truth, oh, hey, it says right there, in the word and in life. Water always is connected with truth. That's the the base, Swedenborg 101, basic correspondence. So that's why God is depicted as having this sound in the voice. In the head, body, and feet, are symbols of God's presence at all levels. Um, so you have those three levels of the mind I was talking about before. The divine can be present in any of those, and that, but is present in different ways. And th- that's what the different symbol is that, symbols symbols uh, of, of the different parts of the body are. But it's not just the body. There's accessories, right? And we're going to hear about the accessories that God has in this vision in one, Revelation one sixteen,
1: having in his right hand seven stars and issuing from his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance as the sun shining in its power.
0: There we go. Now we're starting to get to the swords. What does it all mean? Let's see if we can't unpack it with another picture. Man, these things go a long way. Okay, we got seven stars. All the concepts of goodness and truth in the word and from the Lord. Remember, seven means all. This light has to do with truth. So you have, this is all truth. This is everything that is actually what's really happening, and how things really are. The right hand is the power of goodness through truth. There's a symbolism there. So you have these truths shining out, and they're giving this power, uh, because really, if you want to try to affect a situation for good, if you don't understand the situation, you're going to have very little effect on it. But the more you understand, the more power that good passion can have. Then the two-edged sword, the truth that combats and disperses falsity, and a face shining with the sun of divine love." And you may be saying, that's too much swedenborgianese what is his goodness and truth, what does that mean? So we tried to paraphrase it for you here. One way to look at it would be the seven stars in his right hand, the Lord has the power to hold and bring all concepts of good and truth to us. Remember the part of us that's seeing this vision, this is the promise of that connection. The two-edged sword is the divine truth that will combat and disperse the falsity in our lives. Think about, you probably know people that you think that person is really living more miserably than they need to because they have something, they believe something about themselves or something about life that is making them miserable. And if that was dispersed, and we have those in ourselves too, of course. So the face shining with the sun is the Lord is always looking at us with divine love. So you have the love paired with the truth, that God is never looking at you like, ah, you're not measuring up, you got that wrong. It's a, the, the only reason to even look is to help, and that God is not keeping score. That's the radiating or the shining there. But yeah, there's a, there's a sword there, but it's not meant to say God is going to kill ev- everybody, or that that war is good, or whatever. It's, it's a symbol of the combat of false ideas and true ideas. And this is depicted throughout the text of the Bible, and Swedenborg says it all means a similar kind of thing. This is Apocalypse Revealed, 52. So this is the one Swedenborg did publish. Swords are often mentioned in the Word, and they symbolize nothing else than truth combating falsities and destroying them. In an opposite sense, they also symbolize falsity combating truths. For wars in the Word symbolize spiritual wars, which are those of truth against falsity and of falsity against truth. Therefore... The weapons of war symbolize the means by which the combat is carried on in these wars. It is apparent that the sword here means a dispersion of falsities by the Lord because it was seen to issue from His mouth, and to issue from the Lord's mouth is to do so from the word. For the Lord spoke it with His mouth. Furthermore, because the word is understood by means of doctrine drawn from it, this too is symbolically meant. It is called a sharp two-edged sword because it pierces the heart and the soul. So that, and that's all this in in the Bible, there's all kinds of violence and war, which is disturbing. Why is it there? How is this good? This is all symbolic of the struggles, the clashes we have in our minds of between the truth and what's not true, what's going to help, what's not going to help. Everybody knows that war. Everybody's fought it in their own specific way, but everybody knows that. Alright, so we're going to look at more, but let's take a little break. It's intermission, right? We've been going for a while. Uh, we have a fan video, which we love hearing from you guys, because we know like, it's been awesome how many of you are watching this. We want to know who you are, so sometimes people send one in. We've actually been getting quite a lot, which is awesome. And here's one that, that we really like today. And this is where she tells us about her story of getting into Swedenborg, and then gives us. A, a course, this cool little correspondence idea that she has. So it's a two-parter. Uh, thanks for it, and send yours in if you want to be part of it, too.
4: The thing I love about Swedenborg and the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel is that I get so much more understanding being able to relate from both sources. I've been reading these books for about three years, and when I started, it was really, really hard to get through the material because of the language that's used. I was just so amazed and so grateful to find Off Left Eye. I saw the first video called You Are The Lungs and I was just so grateful that it was there and started watching everything that you guys put out. For example, something happened in my life and I just started to think about the rich and the poor. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, when you try to make sense of these things on your own, it's almost impossible. It's impossible for me. But having Swedenborg to refer to, I go through it and I'm, I can read it over and over and over again. And now I can refer back to some of the stuff that I saw on your YouTube channel and it all starts to make sense. So since you guys were asking for videos, I decided to take something that was going on in my own life. It had to do with the rich and the poor in heaven. So I came up with a correspondence that worked for me to help me figure out what was going on. Making the video helped me figure it out even more. Thank you Off the Left Eye for everything you're doing there, your whole team. Thank you to the Swedenborg Foundation. I watch you every week. I watch you multiple times a week. And just thank you so much for being there. Like apple trees. It doesn't matter if they grow in the wild or if they are cultivated. A healthy apple tree, like a healthy human being, is endowed with the inherent ability to produce fruit or good works that provide so much nourishment to the world. In the wild, the tree may struggle through drought or heat or cold or other factors, but it is still able to produce fruit. The apples may be smaller and marred, but they still will be sweet and nourishing to their own degree. A cultivated tree may have an easier time of it. With more care and pruning, maybe it's given added nourishment or protection from the cold, heat, or pests. The apples may be bigger and more beautiful, and perhaps even more abundant, but they still exist to provide sweet nourishment to all who love apples. As a human being, I like to think of ourselves like these trees, like plants in general. We all have a divine gift to give something of ourselves to the world. We can choose to be like an apple tree that provides nourishment to many, or we can choose to be like some weeds that mostly rob nourishment from the soil for a more self-serving purpose. Many weeds, like many of us, are always competing for more and more space and an even greater presence. Lots of us seem to align with this nature. But even though weeds do provide some nourishment to the lower parts of our ecosystem, they also can prevent soil erosion. So when we so choose, weeds can always be cleared away to make way for the seed of something higher. And just like with an apple tree apples can be hoarded to feed only a chosen few they can be left to fall to the ground or they can be harvested and shared among the multitudes through nature and the writings of Emanuel swedenborg i have come to understand so many things we all have our own nature it doesn't matter if we are just scraping by comfortable or wealthy maybe we have obtained a healthy measure of wealth through struggle and sacrifice or maybe it was thrust upon us it just doesn't matter if we are giving by nature We will always give in a measure that is within the limits of our means to do so. But if we are miserly, the tendency will always be towards accumulating as much as possible and offering as little as necessary. The choice is always right in front of us, and we have this gift of a lifetime to do it in.
0: Yeah, we said we would talk about falling over forward. I'm sure that's why you stuck with us this long, and we're going to really talk about it now. Uh, Spoiler alert, John on the Isle of Patmos falls over forward. Okay, now I'll give you the text that that comes from. This is Revelation 117.
1: And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last.
0: So, why did he do that? Like, John just can't hack it, or is he not that tough? I mean, what? No, everybody does that. <laughs> everybody would. We actually can't endure the direct presence of the divine. It's just a metaphysical fact. According to Swedenborg, Apocalypse Revealed 54, he says, he's explaining this verse, "...and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." This symbolically means that he experienced a failure of his own life, owing to such a presence of the Lord. A person's own life cannot endure the presence of the Lord such as the Lord is in Himself, indeed such as He is in His inmost constituents of His Word. For His divine love is altogether like the sun, which no one can endure as it is in itself, because it would consume Him." I mean, we really like the sun. We love uh, getting warmed by it. We like hanging out in it uh, pretty much every bit of life on the planet is traced directly back to the sun. We benefit it from immensely. We would not want to be right in front of the sun. We actually don't even want to be millions of miles away from the sun because it's too intense. God knows that you know, on a spiritual level. The, God has that same power, and so God is interested in accommodating to make the whole thing work, which is pretty nice. Uh, this is Swedenborg describing it a little more in Apocalypse Revealed 54.
5: This being the case, the Lord therefore appears to angels in heaven as the sun at a distance from them, like the world's sun from people. That is because the Lord in that sun is present as he is in himself. But still the Lord moderates and tempers his divinity, so as to make it possible for a person to endure his presence. This he does by veilings. It was what he did when he revealed himself to many people in the word. Indeed, it is by veilings that he is present in everyone who worships
0: him. And When John, John talks about when he saw the Lord, that this happened to him, and this is because he was seeing in this feeling-centered, cerebellum way, that Swedenborg actually says there, you can be in a certain mindset and it doesn't really matter that much to you to be exposed to the divine. This is Apocalypse Explained 76, he says, and when I saw him symbolizes the presence of the divine majesty. This presence was granted to John when he saw his face as a sun in its power, which is what enlightened John and filled him with awe in the presence of the divine. I need to make it clear that we have two ways of seeing. One that arises from a faith based on what goes on in our intellect. The other that arises from love. When we see only with a faith based merely on what we think, the Lord's divine majesty inspires no awe in us. So you can just be like, nah, it doesn't sound like that cool. It doesn't sound that cool. But when we see with love, we feel awe at the same divine majesty. This is because, in the second case, we are turned toward the Lord on a spiritual level, and it is love that turns us in that direction. Faith, based on thought, has no love in it, and so it fails to turn us. Turn us. The truth of this is well known in the spiritual world. And getting into that, you've got to live, live what you believe, or else it doesn't really have potency. No detail in this story doesn't have meaning. Even the falling itself is not just a reaction, there is symbolism to it as well. This is AE77. Every kind of feeling or emotion has a corresponding gesture in the body. This is getting, you know, you put your hands on your hips, universally it means something. He's saying there's a spiritual origin for that. The body naturally comes into these gestures when we have the feeling inside us. Humbleness in the presence of another person causes us to bow depending on how much esteem we have for that person. Humbleness in the presence of the divine, however, causes a complete bowing down, especially when we think that the divine is the all-in-all of power and wisdom, while we are comparatively nothing, or that everything good and true comes from the divine, while nothing but evil comes from ourselves. Uh, If you want it, we have a show called The Infinite in You, which further explains that dynamic. It ain't as bad as it seems. When we acknowledge this truth in our heart. Then we come out of ourselves, so to speak, and fall on our face to the ground. When we are outside ourselves like that, we are separated from our own self-involved nature, which in itself is completely evil. And when this self-centeredness is taken away, the divine fills us and stands us on our feet. Uh, But this is an important point. It is, it's not that the divine wants this kind of humiliation for his sake, but so that evil can then be removed. And to the extent that the evil in us is set aside, to that extent, the divine flows in, because evil is the only thing standing in the way. To put that in visual form, let's say that we were hanging out and suddenly we came upon the divine human. We actually have footage of this, so let's take a look at it. Um, at first, we're just, we're totally knocked down by it, but God is not interested in uh, saying, hey, I told you so. You, you Compared to me, you're nothing. Um, this is a way to get past egocentric life. That it takes, sometimes, a humbling experience. You see this happening in people. People will have a life event. A lot of people who have near-death experiences, well, there's a humbling component to it that gets you to think beyond yourself. And, and totally divorced from anything religi- religious religious, or spiritual, uh, people just have these experiences of, wow, I, I, I failed at something. It's just getting older, you start to realize, okay, life is a little different. This is the way that you just let in a little bit of uh, hey, maybe, maybe there's more to life, and that that is what the Divine can work with. And, you know, th- God is not interested in... God is interested in then helping. Helping as much as possible. And the whole thing was for our benefit in the first place. I mean, you just... people have said that they've had ex- direct experiences with the Divine Human. Howard Storm, he was a guest on our show, wrote a best-selling book about his near-death experience. He said he met Jesus Christ. And that he was cool. He was like funny, had a good sense of humor. Howard Storm like could tell him everything that was wrong, all his like stuff that you'd be most embarrassed to talk. And Jesus was like, Nah, that's fine. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. But like, it was just like this real atmosphere of friendliness, and that that is what the divine human is. And that touch that you saw given there, the touch means something, too, Um, that actually is an infusion of life that the Divine gives us. This is Apocalypse Revealed 55. The Lord laid his right hand on him because the communication is effected through the touch of the hands. That is because the life of the mind and soul of the body projects itself into the arms and through them into the hands. It is on this account that the Lord touched with His hand the people He brought back to life and healed. The fundamental reason for this is that the Lord's presence with us consists in His attaching to us and therefore in His uniting with us by being close to us. And this closeness is more intimate and more complete the more we love Him, or in other words, the more we do what He commands. It's not really about adulation, it's about living well. It's about kindness and love. All the commandments of God have to do with treating other people well. From these few observations, it can be seen that the Lord's laying his right hand on John means symbolically that he infused his life into him. So that touch mattered. And actually, as we just know from being human beings, touch is important. And it can do a lot of things. There's further spiritual heft to it when when you realize what it all corresponds to. This This is from Apocalypse Explained 79, just a little more on the power of touch.
5: Touching with the hand means communicating and transferring to another, because all the power of a person is transferred from the body into the hands. Therefore, what the mind wills that the body should do, the arms and hands perform accordingly. This power, however, is power on the earthly plane, and communication on that level is an exertion of bodily forces. But spiritual power is to will the good of another, and as much as possible, to be willing to transfer to another what belongs to oneself. This power is symbolized by a hand in the spiritual sense, and the communication and transference of that power is symbolized by touching with the hand.
0: And immediately after that touch happens in the text in Revelation, that's when Jesus speaks. Uh, That's when that that word comes out. So we're going to look here at what is said next. And we're going to give you the text and then give you our paraphrase of Swedenborg's inner meaning to that. So here's Revelation 17 to 18.
1: Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Don't be afraid. I will fill you with my life. I am the infinite and eternal God, and I govern all things. I am the eternal source of life. My divine humanity has been disregarded, unacknowledged, and rejected. And yet if you are willing to receive me into your life, into your faith and your love and your actions, I am eternal life in you. This is the truth, and I alone can free you from hell and keep you safe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Doesn't that almost sound like a threat? But yet we translated it symbolically as this very, very comforting thing. So how does that all work? Well, Apocalypse Revealed 62 has a clue. It's about keys in general. Keys symbolize the power to open and close. Here the power to open hell so that that a person can be brought out. And to close it, not to keep you in, but to keep him from going back in once he has been brought out. For people are born into evils of every kind, thus into a state of hell, for evil constitutes hell." You could say that um, tendencies toward egotistical behavior, towards behavior that makes you and others miserable. "...they are brought out of it by the Lord, who has the power to open it. To have the keys of hell and death does not mean have the power to cast into hell, but the power to save." And this because it immediately follows the declaration, behold, I am alive forevermore, which symbolically means that the Lord alone is eternal life. Moreover, the Lord never casts anyone into hell, but is the person himself who casts himself. The Lord's power extends not only over heaven, but also over hell. For hell is kept in its order and connection by forces directed against and opposed to heaven. Consequently, he who rules the one must necessarily rule the other. Otherwise, no one could be saved. To be saved is to be brought out of hell. The God the, the the hell state of mind, you can see our show, The Good Thing About Hell, to learn more. Swedenborg's definition of hell is very different than the mainstream Christian, or whatever you want to call it, definition of hell, but he uses the same terminology for it. But God doesn't throw anyone. God never locks anyone in hell. You only are in that state of mind. If that's what you love, and that's your your happiest place, then you can be there. But God just has keys to bring people out. So let's talk about keys. Look at that, a nice key. What do they symbolize? well power to open and close. And this, specifically, the power of the divine to free us from states of mind that are making us miserable. And if you think about what makes a key a key, oops, is this little part here, where there's information. There's a very specific shape to these things, and keys have gotten more and more complex, but not cooler looking than this one. That's why we use this one. But in there, that's the information that saves. And in the case of God, there is infinite wisdom and infinite love in there. And that is the power that it takes and is used to free us from these things, to guide us and work with us to get out of them and accomplish the greatest goal which is happiness for conscious mind. So if God, if you're ever hanging out with God, and God says, "I got keys, don't worry about it. It's a good thing." All right? So that's the symbolism. What's it all for? We've been looking through this Book. What does it mean? Why are we getting here? Let's take a look at our final section about the goal of it all. Let's take a look at a couple more verses here that get us at the point of it all, and that this is a vision of something that is needs to be accomplished. So this is sort of like setting a a goal for ourselves. This is a revelation.
1: Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this.
0: Just generally writing is talking about saving for posterity, uh, remembering it, keeping it close. Let's go right into Revelation 1.20 after that.
1: The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches.
0: So we're talking about the mystery of the stars. That sounds like a cool thing to talk about. This is the, the, the secrets or the keys or the concepts that can create this new church mindset in people. This, how do you stay in a positive state of mind? How do you shed harmful tendencies. How does it work? There are specific concepts that can get you there. That's these stars. Uh, then we have these lampstands that pop up, and this has to do with the heaven that is being created, but also the, the mindset, which we'd more call the church, for people living in this world, and that how they can practice that same kind of thing. So That's the symbolism of these lampstands here. We're going to look a little bit more at stars, and why the stars are pictured here, and what they mean, and this is from Apocalypse Revealed 65.
5: The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. This symbolizes a new church in the heavens, which is the new heaven. The church in the heavens, or new heaven, is meant by the seven stars, because we are told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and an angel symbolizes a heavenly society. The sky in the spiritual world appears filled with stars, as in the natural world, and this appearance is owing to the angelic societies in heaven. Every society there shines like a star in the eyes of inhabitants who dwell below. Because of this, they know there where the angelic societies are situated. Seven symbolically does not mean seven, but all who are constituents of the church there, according to each one's state of reception. Thus, the angels of the seven churches mean the whole church in the heavens, thus the new heaven in its entirety.
0: You have spiritually these angelic minds or these communities shining like stars. That you can actually, if you're in the spiritual world, if you're I'm going to be there, you can look up and see them. That There's, there's corresponding things there to, that are here, but they have meaning. They have human psychological meaning. That you're not just seeing, uh, you know, various balls of fusion or vision or whichever one stars do, you're seeing this intelligence that shines brilliantly like that, some divine truth escaping. And there can be corresponding mindsets that we are dealing with in this life on earth. This is Apocalypse Explained 90. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, means that those who receive goods and truths from the Lord, means those who receive goods and truths from the Lord. That So, any of us who receives what is good or what is true. This is evident from the symbolism of the seven stars as meaning all goods and truths from the Lord, and from the symbolism of angels as being those in the heavens who are in similar corresponding good and truth, and those who are in the church on earth. Also, the symbolism of seven churches means all, remember seven is all, who are in truths from good or in faith from charity. Thus all who belong to the church." Remember, he uses this word church. It's not a church organization. It's a state of mind and heart. From all this together, it follows as a conclusion that these words, the seven stars that are the angels of the seven churches, mean all those who receive goods and truths from the Lord. The whole of heaven is divided into societies, and the societies are arranged according to the to affections of good and truth in general, and particular. These societies correspond to those on earth who are in similar affections of good and truth. All these societies are called angels, and each one is called an angel, and a society, when viewed from a distance, appears as, as a single angel. This holographic stuff he talks about a lot, that you can see a group of people that if you view them from afar, spiritually, it looks like just one person, because they're in such symbiosis that they're working together as intimately as a human body. Any individual angel can look like that, just like we as people look like that. He says the human race, heaven as a whole, everybody who's got, any, who's trying to do something good, you can view them all together as one human form. Even down to the micro level, our own thoughts and feelings somehow hold this form in them as well. So it appears all over the place, and you see in that there's potential to combine the heavenly and the earthly, because what we do here is sort of the receiving end or, or the, the resonator for what's going on in there. It's not just like, oh, there's, there's heaven and there's a spiritual world that's out there. It's, it's the world. We're inhabiting both of those right now. We, we, what we think and feel is affected. By what's going on there. All right, let's talk about lampstands, right? This is Apocalypse Revealed 66, because those are featured here too. Because seven symbolically means all, the seven lampstands do not mean seven churches, but the church in its entirety which in itself is one, though varied in accordance with people's reception, meaning people could look very different externally, even be different religions, but could still be in the same church. These variations may be compared to the various jewels in a royal crown, and they may also be compared to the various members and organs in an intact body, meaning an unharmed body, which nevertheless form a single unit. The perfection of every form arises from various components suitably arranged in their proper order. That is why the seven churches describe the entire new church in its varieties. According to Swedenborg, diversity good. They're actually, the more different kinds of people you have working together, the more that something is perfect. So this seven here, instead of it just being one lampstand, it's seven, because it's symbolizing all the different ways different kinds of people work with their unique character to bring a happy world. That is that's what that is an image of. Let's return now. Remember in the beginning we pulled up our game board of the Book of Revelation. Um, before we get to it, I want to read one more number for you because we want to talk about these visions. The kind of book ended that we had this beginning of Revelation vision that we were looking at here. The stories in between are, are what needs to be removed. And Swedenborg comments this uh, on this in Apocalypse, explained ninety one for our last. Number, oh no, maybe not our last number of the evening. Everything in the book of Revelation views as its goal and conclusion the new heaven and the new church, as symbolized by the seven golden lampstands. So that is the subject of the final chapters. The intervening chapters deal with the kinds of things that stand in the way and need to be removed, such as all that is involved with the dragon and the beasts of Babylon. When these things are set aside and no longer stand in the way, the new heaven and the new church come into existence and become clearly visible. And on a micro level, this is happening for every single one of us. Now we can go to our game board. You see, we have, you've got a vision in the beginning, um, and there's all this stuff that happens in between as you're trying to get to the goal, and this vision at the end is sort of the realization of it. These, both these visions have the divine, have God at the center, meaning love at the center. First, there's this literally the divine human in the center of the lampstands, and then you have the symbolism in the vision of the the holy city, which is also describing the the actual coming into being of this mindset on the individual level, or of this human race, church mindset uh, on the larger level. And having that vision, knowing that's what you're shooting for, gets you through all this stuff in the middle, all the beasts. All the plagues and all the other stuff that was painted by people on those squares. That gets you through. Um, so that's important. It's important to, to think about it. And it's important to know if we're going to make it through that game board in our lives or or as a human race together, we got to have this divine human love at the center. We got to have goodness and truth, love and wisdom as central. And that's the message of this vision. That's why God here is depicted as a person rather than as a son or something like that, because we're looking at the human side of it. The, the whole thing doesn't happen if human beings don't love human beings and aren't kind to each other and don't take the time to learn about each other and figure out how do we really make this whole thing work. So we're going to have a final little meditation, which has... We're going to look again at these the symbolic human qualities of, of the Lord in this, and we are going to see little snippets about what they mean, so just ponder, how can that show up in your life? How can this be something that brings this sort of heaven on earth? So here's uh, a little bit to vibe out to. That's the show Live each day with integrity and kindness. hope you liked it we've got to make this this mindset happen. The quickest way to spread that heaven on earth is to like and subscribe this video ah! Terrible segue. But if you do that, then will get this particular video out and make YouTube think that our channel is worthwhile. We'd appreciate if you'd be willing to do that. And if you want to make this kind of like obscure biblical exegesis programming available, <laughs> then would you please like consider making a donation? We're a non That's how we run. Here's a little bit about our philosophy.
1: We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.
0: I thought I would give this key a little more airtime. I think it's so good. We only have it for today. So, I said we'd do questions. Let's do questions. For real. What do you guys got? Let's take a look at our first one. Is there a question that Curtis has that Swedenborg doesn't address? Ah, a question about Curtis. Um, yeah, man. Well, I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, regarding biology and the afterlife, how uh, are there... What's the analog to ecosystems? You know, you, here you have animals and the way that they are, and everything follows in sequence and in step. But there he talks about these representational forms and, and flitting in and out how does it, how do you, what's analogous to all that stuff? That's something that that I, that I think about. I come up with little things all the time when I'm reading through and I'm like, oh, he's talking about something that I want to hear, but then, oh, he didn't quite go into the point that I wanted to. Uh, So that does come up. Um, Wow, I'm trying to think of like better answers than those. Um, I would say that, you know, I would love to hear more about, why do we have to deal with little th- with little negative things like when i if if this is all true if there really is this system of providence and everything has meaning you know we're t- going through this show saying every little word in this in this sacred text has meaning when i knock something over or or when i'm trying to open the door and because like i have like stuff in my hand and like i go with my keys but i don't like I, I have a real key here I better use it as a prop. I can't I miss on this one and I drop the keys and I have to go down. Why did that drop? Why didn't it just work? And he he says every detail means something he talks about dice rolling that this is all somehow nothing is permitted unless it leads to greater good. I'd love to hear a lot more about the specifics of that because with the, I can, it's almost funny that it's easier to imagine big things, like really hard things that happen in life. You can look back. People see benefit from that. But what about little things? Why does why doesn't the physical world do what I want it to do? He does talk a little bit about a few reasons, but I'd love to have him write a whole book about that. So there you go. I uh, ho- hope I didn't disappoint, but I'm sure I did. Just kidding. All right, next one. Monica, I've been watching many episodes, but I'm not clear on if we come into this life from the spirit world and then return to it. Do we only live a life once?" I was considering saying, wondering if, the Swedenborg ever address when the spirit is made? He doesn't, he does not talk about reincarnation. I mean, he he says that you live, (coughs) there are successive stages, (coughs) pardon me, that's quite rude, Uh, but like you ha- you're you're in a wo- you're developing in the womb and then you leave and you come and you live out here and you don't go back. You don't go back in stages. You're just not biologically that that would be very hard. He's saying that we're sort of, this is sort of like a womb this life and then you go on and you're living in the next life. And he says you stay you keep developing there but you don't come back here. So I don't know for sure. About, he de- he de- he also doesn't talk about there's a lot of um there are a lot of um concepts out there that I hear people talking about saying, you know, before this life Happened. We chose our life, and and you you were a fully developed conscious mind before this. Now, I th- he he seems to be indicating that no, we're we're forming for real as this happens. Like I before I learned how to talk here, it's not my spirit didn't already know that. Th- th- there's a progression there, um, but he doesn't talk about sort of what's pre like is that does, does things just start right then? So. In general, he doesn't. There's plenty of people that very explicitly say, "You come back here, you do this again." He doesn't say that. He says it's it's a it's all one forward arrow. You keep learning and growing. There's elements of the things that people talk about re- reincarnation, but you don't come back and do this world again. Once is plenty. All right. So that that's what he says. Next one, Terry. Since many centuries have passed since the writing of Revelation, the symbolic interpretation we're seeing now is furthermore enlightenment interpretation to be expected in future centuries. It's a good question. I was talking about, um, you know, fire being a symbol for what it is, and are there, like, uh, solar panels have got to have a good correspondence. If if everything is a correspondence, that's, the, that's got to be even better correspondence, right? Because this is energy that's not polluting, um, and so, um, so how, how do we you know, move forward, I'm sure. Swedenborg describes a dynamic world that is changing. As we saw in this episode, he was writing a series of books, and then this huge, what's called the Last Judgment, which is another phrase that Swedenborg explains in a a different way, uh, that happened, and then the whole world is different. So things have probably happened since then. So all kinds of change happens. So I would imagine there's going to be more enlightenment. If Swedenborg talks about this new church mindset, it being no longer once everybody's getting there, once the world gets on, gets things together, and everybody's getting happier and better, people just start individually getting insider. It won't be. It's not going to be like you got to believe some 18th century guy in a wig that this thing happened. Like people will just, it'll be as obvious as anything. And I don't know how those discoveries come, whether it's through science or whether it's through people just having spiritual experiences all the time, I don't know. But he does say that, yeah, it's not like, okay, there was the Bible, and then there's Swedenborg, and then it's over. And Swedenborg describes this whole history of changing Revelation. And initially, there was no such thing as sacred text. People just got these insights from observing nature. And that was, that was the communication. So yeah, the whole thing, just like you see how much the world is changing, you know, it's not like the spiritual side of things is, is static and fake. It, it would be leading that change. So those are a couple. All right, well, let's do one more question. These have been great ones. I, I can't stop. Okay, here's Rachel. If church means state of mind and heart, why is it not just translated as that instead of the word church, which holds such negative connotations? Well, man, first of all, he was writing hundreds of years ago. Oh, you're asking why so as far as uh, what he was writing the word i think it's ecclesia that's the word um if you're a latin translator now you have to render that church and the confusing thing is there are times when he is talking about a church like he was a big critique of the uh, critique he was a big critic of the christian church in his day he said there's a lot of stuff that's going on here that's really whack and he used that word church to talk about that church. He does talk about, he uses that word sometimes for that. So you couldn't you could make an argument that you could translate it, uh, state of heart and mind. Um, I don't know. You'd have to get the, the NCE people in here, see what they thought about it. I agree. It does cause problems. and It's not just with the word church. There's all kinds of words. I said, even heaven and hell, all these things, he has these different sort of definitions from it, and he'll give them, even he talks about, we talked in this episode about loving the Lord. Right, loving God. And you might think, oh, that means think about God and think God is so, so awesome and I love God so much. Um but in in heaven and hell he gives this definition to say to love God is to love to do good things to other people. Because that is what God is interested in. And and the only way you can really love God is through practicing but but Everywhere else, he just says, love God. So you would just think, oh, i got to spend a lot of time thinking about the specifics of God and really developing affection for those. But, but that's, so he does that all the time. But I think it's good because it gives me a job <laughs> explaining away all these negative connotations. So hopefully I've explained the complexity of it a bit to you. I think, there you know, there could be projects where there's future translations where you have all the Swedenborgianese translated. Um into uh, the next, into stuff like that, or you have little excerpts of it. Uh, For now, because of the way he uses it to bridge and everything like that, uh, it's got to happen. Hopefully, you know, uh, you know, maybe we can take that word back, you know, maybe eventually people know, oh, you're talking about church, yeah, the church in me, the church in you, and it becomes cool. Maybe there's these big, long cycles, you know, different kinds of pants go in and out. Maybe the church will come back in. I don't know. So, anyway great questions. As usual, I don't have all the answers, or I don't have any of the answers. Appreciate it. And speaking of not having any of the answers, next week, we're doing a question show, meaning we are going to have our 10 questions format. We'll get different people in there answering questions, because we, right now, there's more questions that I'm leaving on the table in this episode, because we get so many that we we can't quite get to them all. We're going to try to get to at least 10 of them next week so tune in for that we'll be just dedicating the whole time to making sure your questions are answered we'll uh, we'll have that recorded and played to you then uh so thanks everybody for joining us uh, it was a complex topic thanks for sticking it out and we will see you next week